Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta, and we're on a roll. The, uh, the goal of this podcast is to interview an esteemed storyteller in the business, someone who can offer insights into the changing world of journalism or the craft of storytelling. And we have a big one today, Ed Kilgore, who last month said goodbye to the broadcast world after four decades doing sports at the NBC affiliate in Buffalo, New York. He is the dean of Buffalo Sportscasting, a member of the Buffalo Broadcasting Hall of Fame, and an all-around swell guy. Ed, welcome <laughs> to the podcast. Well, that's a good start. I can't wait to hear what I have to say. <laughs> Me neither. And now, Ed, uh, you and I were co-workers once upon a time before my four years here in Atlanta. I worked for nearly four years at WGRZ-TV in Buffalo. And back then, I was a sports guy, and I learned a lot from watching you and Part of what I saw was a man whose own job at the time was changing quite a bit in terms of how the department covered sports and in ways that broadcasters covered sports. So the first question I wanted to ask you is, of the four decades you spent in Buffalo, would you say that the last 10 years featured the most change of any of those four? Well, without question. And then on top of that, I would say the last two years included more changes, more technological changes than the, the eight leading up to it. Um, it's just, it's, it's really been pretty unbelievable. Part of the, part of that is technology, but Matt, also part of that was my role change because I started, uh, I was cut back to just doing the six o'clock and I became self-contained. So I was my own editor, producer. So I had to learn, well, we had Avid and then we went to another system, Edius. And we changed a couple of times. We changed our uh, uh, a lot of the graphic, uh, the ways we did graphics. So my my job really became much more complicated only in the last couple of years. And just about the time I was starting to get it figured out, uh, I left. <laughs> I left for another job. <laughs> I think of editing. I also think of the way you embrace social media. Was was of the changes that you made? Was there one that you enjoyed the most? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because Facebook, I, I was sort of, both Facebook and Twitter, I sort of went into kicking and screaming because I just, <laughs> I thought they were kind of silly until I realized that it's a great way to reach people. And so I remember going on the air with Mary Alice Dimler had already had her 5,000 before she had to, to go to another stage. And I had like 11, uh, something like 11 friends one night on the air, I said. <laughs> and But it quickly grew up to the 5,000, which is where it was stuck. So recently I went on Twitter and I quickly got up to, you know, over 1,000. But the, the problem is now that with my uh, job change, they don't want me to tweet anymore and they don't really want <laughs> me to be. So I'm, I'm, I've really become more of a tweet monitor now because as you know, Twitter is where it's at now in terms of information. I mean, I feel like if you told me, um, Ed, you can't have anything. You can only have one. Uh, uh, you can only have access to one media outlet. You can't have compute. I mean, you can't have uh, ESPN. You can't have CNN. You can't have, but you can't have anything. Uh, I would want Twitter because that's that's where the stories break, and that's where you get your first heads up that something is about to happen. I think we saw that a lot. Obviously, we're talking sports, but I think you really saw that to a certain extent a few weeks ago with the tragedy in Boston and all of the events 
that followed that simply in the way that, you know, there were times where you used to be able to really be able to trust everything you saw on TV and Twitter was kind of like the wild, wild west. And it seemed to me, and I'm not sure if you feel this way, but it seemed to me that there was almost a reversal in that people were going, at least people that I know, a lot of them were going to Twitter first because they knew that even though so much of it was speculation and so much of it was opinion, the aggregate of that opinion usually wound up being pretty accurate. Oh, I think that's a great point. In fact, that's the, the sort of the way I looked at it. If You can kind of tell just uh, the way the tweets are worded if they're, I mean, not always, but you can kind of tell if they're authentic or well-meaning and they're not just some crank or somebody looking to make a, a, a bad joke. And uh, you're, you're right. I mean, you sort of get a, a picture that way just as well as uh, watching the reporters doing the stand-ups with everything a half mile behind. Uh, mm. A lot of these people that were uh, uh, tweeting were right there. Uh, and so, you, 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 I mean, there were a couple of really graphic de- uh, descriptions of, of what had happened uh, from people that were right there. Now, you embrace social media. Um, I know firsthand from watching that not all of these changes uh, were as beloved in your mind. Was there one that was uh, the toughest for you or, or one that you feel is, was, was the hardest to adapt to in your normal workflow? Are you leading me into something here? Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, no, not at no, all. Because, um, I, you know, that's, that's a, a tough one to say because all of it was something that I had to learn and I had to learn quickly. And actually, I, to tell you the truth, I kind of embraced most of it. Um, the, the, the editing actually became fun. I, the, the nonlinear editing, I'm a big fan of that. And I got to, yeah. to where I was pretty good at it. And to create pictures and 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 the, the dissolves and look for the good shots and then and and it's actually easier to I'm sort of straying a little bit from what you said here but it's it's a lot easier if you're doing a sports cast it's a whole lot easier to edit the the, the highlights of something because you know exactly what's there and where yes. it's coming you've already seen it and uh, my script I, I I just would make little notes but I know what I'm going to see. And it makes you can be much more descriptive and 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 really hit it right on the right on the schnoz if you bet it yourself. <laughs> Love the word schnoz, by the way. Always been a big fan of that one as well. <laughs> Wanted to ask you final question on this part. You know, we talk about the changes in your job personally, but also obviously local TV sports has changed so much. And, and you know, I entered this industry about a decade ago, and you know, I was told essentially. Don't expect anything because we don't know what the business is going to look like. Certainly, we don't know what sports is going to look like. And over the past 10 years, I've seen a big change, mostly on the decline in how much time sports receives on the air. And, and it's something that for me, you know, was always very frustrating, not so much in, in, from a sports casting point of view, but from a sports fan point of view as someone who grew up. And when I watched the local news in New York or Chicago or I went to school, that was usually where I would at least enjoy watching the highlights of my local teams. And it's not like the internet or ESPN were not around then. I just, when I wanted my local highlights, I knew I could watch them in three or four minutes in one place. And there you go. And I knew what time every day. And over the 10 years, I know it was tough for me to watch. I'm sure as someone who had been doing it for so long, it was not easy for you to see that kind of change. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the time being cut, 
made it more difficult. But again, the, the, the goal was the same and it has always been the same for me. And especially as uh, ESPN and all the other outlets continue to grow and their uh, people depend on them for the national stories. So uh, to me, uh, anything local uh, supersedes anything national, unless there's a huge story, like obviously the, the Boston Marathon bombing or, or that kind of thing. But uh, so, so you know, really, you know what, I, one of the things that was frustrating to me and, and your being in Buffalo reminds me of this. I also <laughs> like, I also like stories and good features. And what yeah. was frustrating to me was I never had time. You or one of our other reporters would go out and do a nice little feature on some local athlete and maybe have a nice angle, a nice human touch, maybe some good emotion in there. And guess what? I never got to use it. It was always the, the newsies, as we say. The news, right. the news folks would, would grab it for the five or for, and so it would never make it to sports, even though it's my sports department that created it, so to speak. So that was right. always, that to this day remains a little bit frustrating for me. And I think too, I, I can say on my end, it was always difficult in that you would want to have the time necessary to tell a story. And certainly, you know, given the way that sports had been trimmed in terms of time, it would be very difficult, I would think, on your end to accommodate a minute and a half feature within the realm of a, of a two and a half, three minute sportscast. I mean, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for other content. No, when you have a four minute sportscast, you can you can live with a minute 20 pack. Maybe, you know, that right. you can you can kind of live with that. And, and and that's all right. But uh, yeah. And the real in-depth stories, whether they're news or sports, that's one of the nice things uh that Gannett does. And I know they did it in Buffalo and you're doing it in Atlanta, <clears throat> you know, and you have a boatload of image to show for it. And that is, <laughs> and that is, you know, the in-depth stories where, where you let them breathe and, and you, you can take five or six minutes if it's good. And it doesn't seem like that long if you're watching it. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, of Buffalo as a, as a market, I wanted to kind of segue into that topic next, because for me, and, and I realized this, the more and more time I'm away from Buffalo, but Buffalo is such a unique sports city and I enjoyed it so much being in that market because there's such passion among the fan base, but you know, there are other cities that have passionate fan bases, but in terms of news, my goodness, I mean, if something, if the Buffalo bills in the NFL or the Sabres in the NHL did anything that went in the first block of the newscast, in addition to it being in sports, I would assume that, you know, if you were going to pick four decades to spend in a city in terms of just on their passion for sports alone, Buffalo would rank high on the list. I'm sure you're pretty thrilled with the market you've got to cover sports in. No question about it. And, you know, I started right out of Mizzou in San Antonio, which back then didn't have the Spurs. They had double-A baseball. And uh, then I went to Houston. Uh, the Oilers were horrible back then. Uh, they also had... Uh, uh, the Rockets with Calvin Murphy was there and Big E, Elvin Hayes. And uh, this is going right over your head, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were. That is not true. Uh, oh, you you remember. <laughs> well, and, and, and the Houston Rockets also, you know, they had, a, you know, a, a lot of good. There were, there were a lot of good players that played for uh, the Houston Astros. Uh, but then coming to Buffalo, I, I noticed. Remember, I got there in 73, just as Rich Stadium then was built. O.J. Simpson was there. He was going well. The Braves were fairly new in the NBA, but they had Bob McAdoo they brought in, who was a big star. 
And mm-hmm. the Sabres had the French connection, Gilles Perro uh, leading the way. And so it was an exciting time to get to Buffalo. And then eventually things changed. The, the Braves left. The Sabres continued to win. And the Bills had their ups and downs. And right now, it's it's really interesting what's happening in Buffalo media-wise. And I don't know, I don't know if this is happening in Atlanta at all. Well, the Falcons have been winning now, but um, what's happened here is there's a certain segment of the media that is becoming more and more um, adversarial. It's 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 becoming like a mini Philadelphia. It's the worst I've ever seen. There was a press, and thank goodness now I'm. I'm working for Terry Pagula, the owner of the Sabres, but I have nothing to do with the Sabres. I'm working for his oil and gas company in Pittsburgh. But and we can talk more about that later. If you, but but I'm I'm almost happy that I wasn't a part of this abominable press conference on Monday when GM Darcy Regeer and Ron or uh, uh, Ted Black, the president of the Sabres, um, were basically just bombarded by questions about why are they keeping Regeer and what, you know, of course they just raised ticket prices and they missed the playoffs and why wasn't the owner Terry Pagula there? I mean, why don't they stop to think the owners never in, in most cities, in most sports, the owners don't, they don't sit in front of the microphones and explain what went wrong. That's not what they do. And, and nor should they be required to, in my view, but it's become a, almost like a vendetta here for the, for the local media to to raise their voices, become antagonistic, and it's happened. It's happened not as much with the Bills, although it's been there some. When Chan Gailey was there before he was fired, when Tom Donahoe was there before he got fired, but the long mm-hmm. string of of playoff absences have started to create a, a, a very uncomfortable uh, relationship between some of not all, but some of the local media. And the pro teams, and I think it's really unfortunate because I don't think it really reflects the way. Mo- I think most fans just want to hear answers. They they want to know, okay, why didn't this work? What are you going to do? What's the future? But it's when they are demanding answers, it's uh, it's just not very pretty, and it's it's something that is that I really notice now that I'm leaving the business. I don't know where it's going to go from here. Yeah, you know, I always thought that the most honest discussion that I heard in the Buffalo sports media scene always did seem to come on the radio. And it's not because I thought the, the radio journalists or the, the, you know, the shock jocks were better than the folks on TV or the paper, but it was where I actually could hear the fans speak. And I think a lot of times when you, you know, when you're insulated from that environment and you don't really have to answer to the fans directly, like you said, it it can become very personal between the media and the team where ultimately it really is about the media conveying what's going on with the team and, of course, holding the team accountable when things don't go well, but conveying that to the fans. Well, what's unfortunate is it's a bit of an unfair fight because uh, those of us in television have such a short time in our sportscast that we have to say something. We we can't really go in depth, and and if we are uh, uh, not happy with the way a certain player played or a coach's decision, we mention it. But we don't have time to to go in in depth like they do in a newspaper column or or certainly on the radio with the fans. But I also would caution a lot of people that by listening to the fans who call in, I don't think you can really form a true judgment of what the majority of the fans are thinking, because usually the people that are the most upset 
And a lot of them like to hear their voices. They like they just like to hear themselves on the radio. And they know that they will get on the radio the more controversial they are and the more fired up they get. So they know that will get them airtime. So I, I think it's a distorted picture. I've always felt like that way. I, You know, like you look at the talk radio in, say, Toronto, it's much, much milder and more intellectual. And I, I know some people, oh, yes. some people in Buffalo may may not like me saying that. But it's but I'm on with or I was I can't now but with the fan in Toronto and TSN I used to be on with them a couple times a week and it was it was really more fun to be with them because at least they they have rational discussions and the callers are more rational they're not ranting and raving and and making threats and I'm giving up on this team and I'm you know I'm burning my tickets and it's it's entertaining but I don't I still don't think it reflects what the majority of the fans are thinking. Let me ask you this about uh, sports in Buffalo, because this was a criticism that I heard a lot about the role that specifically the Bills and Sabres played in the city when I was there. And that is that, you know, you would constantly hear people saying something to the effect of uh, the city depends too much or hitches its wagon too much to the Bills and Sabres. They let the Bills and Sabres bully them around when it comes to financials decisions and, and the fans kind of focus more on the sports teams than about fixing the real problems in the city. And, and essentially that, you know, because the Bills and Sabres were the things, were the entities that made Buffalo, let's say, a, a national city, that they were just embraced both in the positive and negative ways. Not saying that the Bills and Sabres did anything wrong, but that the way that they were uh, treated in the city were, were on a much higher platform and level than maybe a professional sports team should warrant. Is that a fair criticism in your eyes? I don't. I actually, I don't think so. I, I, I'll tell you why. Because I think you can always make that that argument that's sort of apples and oranges. It's like, yeah, do do does a professional football team really bring in all the revenue that they claim it does to the Western New York area? I mean, they're getting a lot of tax breaks from uh, not only the Erie County but from the state. To, and now there's talk of maybe a new stadium that taxpayers would have to kick in on. And a lot, there's a lot of outrage about that. that. That money could be better spent, you know, paving roads or, or making schools better. But you can make that yeah. argument about anything. You know, should we should we just not allow the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra anymore because it's frivolous? I mean, and people actually donate millions of dollars. But I think you have to have um, something to unify the city a little uh, a little sidetrack, a, a, a little uh, something to uh, hang your hat on, good or bad, uh, that that you can kind of get behind a little bit and forget your truck. You know, if, if if all we ever do is spend all of our focus and money on all of the problems, I happen to be of the view that the problems will remain. But let's let's <laughs> let's you know, it's just human nature. That's just the way. I, any country you have. You've got your rich and your poor, your middle class to, to various degrees. It's human nature, and and it, we should strive to fix it. But let's have a little fun along the way, too, and that's where I think your your sports teams come in. And, and there will always be that argument against that, that they're overrated, they're overpaid, and, and the athletes are overpaid. Well, of course they are, but they can get it. So, right. but you know, if, if they can get it, they're worth it. And, you know, people, plenty of people say the same criticism has been in Atlanta about Delta, uh, you know, about the big companies yeah. here in Atlanta. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a professional sports team. And I, I will say that one of the uh, 
you know, Atlanta is is mocked a, a lot of the time for its uh, professional sports fans. I, I will say that one of the joys of being down here has been watching the big college events come through, like the SEC football championship, and this year we had the, the Final Four. And, and part of that is because, you know, even if your teams aren't doing that well, in these cases, you get to watch all the fans come in whose teams are doing really well, and you're reminded of, of just how fun that is. So I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And speaking of fun... With the uh, in the final third of this podcast, I really wanted to talk to you about just uh, advice for young journalists, young sportscasters coming up, and and advice on storytelling. The one thing that I always took from your work, and and it was interesting, you know, I I learned from, in my opinion, two of the best sportscasters around, in both yourself and Adam Benini uh, over at WGRZ, and the contrast in in on air style would, was 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 what was so interesting to me because Adam is really so polished and straight ahead and and you could throw him on sports center and and he would fit right in and 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 that's great and then I would watch you and my gosh the way that you always looked like you were having fun and the way that you did not take it too seriously did not take yourself too seriously that was something you know I Sometimes I think we as journalists tend to take ourselves too seriously. And whenever I would watch you on the air, I would just see that, you know, however long you'd been doing it and however you happen to be feeling that day, when you went on the air, you enjoyed conveying sports to people. You know, that's really interesting because I've never actually heard anybody uh, compare us before. I, I have my own opinions. For instance, uh, uh, Adam is way, way more structured than I am. He's far more organized, structured, like Adam will actually practice his intros. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, he's a real craftsman and he's a very serious journalist. I'm, I'm serious, but maybe it's, I don't know if it's personality or the fact that I started a little sooner before, you know, we didn't have teleprompters back when I broke in. So you were sort of forced to look at the camera and ad lib and make it up. And so I've always just, like the teleprompter to me is only for the, you know, for, for the, for the, um, for the heart of hearing, you know, I mean, that's what it is. You know, I'm trying to, trying to think, you know, I mean, it's, it's really for the captioning. That's what, but, but I use it as a guide and, and, um, and it just, however it kind of comes out, but you're right. I think I always like to think of it as, as yeah, not, to, you know, sports I've always said is the sandbox of life. And I think there are times when it when it does warrant being serious, uh, just like Johnny Carson can't tell jokes all the time. Every now and then you have to to be you have to make the switch. But um, but I always just sort of would rather just roll with it and sort of uh, uh, let, and it, and it seems to have worked because you know I managed to somehow <laughs> make it through. Uh, I think about eight station ownership changes and about. 20, 20 general managers and about 50 or 60 different anchor combinations. So something was working and uh, something was working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, when I interned back in college at uh, WCBS in New York and uh, interned under Warner Wolf, <laughs> who again, huge legend in New York, also in DC. And, you know, we would sit and watch Yankee games and, and I'd be logging the highlights and everything. And you would watch him and he had a, sheet of eight and a half by 11 computer paper and he would write down about six words and that was his script <laughs> for the Yankee game and he wouldn't use the prompter at all he would just go out there and he winged it and he was perfect and 
sometimes, and again, that's what I got out of watching you as, you know, don't forget who you're doing this for. And don't forget that at the end of the day, the people who are watching this, it's still sports. As you said, it is the sandbox of life. And a lot of sportscasters don't embrace that fact. A lot of sportscasters bristle at the idea that sports is, you know, the toy department, so to speak, of the newscast. <laughs> but I never detected that you took that, you know, as as a bad thing. And I don't think it hurts a sportscaster's credibility to have fun and to enjoy what they're doing. You know, it's funny because I, I hadn't thought of this until just now, but uh, one of the things that the, the floor crew would tell me that I didn't even realize, but we, we used to, right after our 11 o'clock sports, we would tape our daybreak sports, okay? And it's basically the same show. You just, you run the same video. Pre-tape for the morning. Yeah, for the pre-tape for the morning. And you make it look like it's live. You know, you don't, you don't say last night. You, you, you know, it's, it's, in fact, for years, people thought I, I worked like a 24-hour shift, you know? Yes, but, <laughs> you're letting people really in behind the, the curtain right the, now the, with that. Yeah, but the funny, the funny thing about it is, for the daybreak show, I didn't use it. I never used a script at all. I uh, because I already had done it, and so we we I told them to turn the the teleprompter off because I would rather see me in in the camera, and uh, to me it seemed very natural to do it that way. But I didn't use a script at all for any of the daybreak shows at all because I already knew what it was, and so I would word it differently. But um, but you know it takes I tell you what to the young and you said dude I have advice. To the young aspiring mm-hmm. uh, sportscasters out there, uh, you have to work at it. You really do. It's not. And you know, one of the best bits of advice I ever got. Did you ever know who Clip Smith was? It used to. Clip Smith used to be a weekend sports guy at Channel Seven, and he had just the world's. He unfortunately was uh, killed in a tragic auto accident a few years ago. But he had a uh, a way of, of of using the worst puns in the world. You know, like like a soccer player should always keep his best foot forward and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, right. But Clip had a photographic memory. And what Clip told me one time, and it was great advice for if you're out doing a, a live shot or you're on camera, he said was to trust yourself, to always trust yourself that you can look at that camera and whatever information you need is going to be there. You don't have to, like, panic, look at your notes, just eyeball it and trust yourself. And, uh, and it really was valuable uh, uh, insight to me because once, once you get the confidence to do that, it's, it's sort of taking a little bit of a leap of faith. It's sort of like, you know, jumping off and not quite sure that there's water down there because you're, because (laughs) once you take your eyes off the script and now you're, 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 now you have to go with it. You can't, you can't turn back. And, but once you sort of get the knack and the confidence to do that. I think that's the best way to communicate by far. You've watched uh, a lot of young sportscasters come through in the last 10 years, myself being one of them, but also, you know, not just at channel two, but I'm sure you've seen some of the work that, that other young up and comers have done in the market. What are younger sportscasters missing? Well, that's a, a, a great question because I think now, uh, Many of them are doing ESPN uh, job interviews. They're they're doing audition tapes. That's that's the way it looks to me. Uh, they're just they're 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 being cutesy. They're being wordy. They're they're using catchphrases like that's going to get them. You know, thank God none of our guys have have said "boom goes the dynamite" yet. We haven't had that. We haven't <laughs> had that happen. But <laughs> it's close. But 
But I, I do think, I think there's a little bit too much of acting like a sportscaster and acting like a sportscaster in three to two or two, instead of communicating and being a little more conversational. And I, so whenever anybody sends me a tape to critique and, and they used to do that, the first thing that I would say, you probably need a little more energy, a little more, because most people just starting out don't realize that you have to use more energy uh, to make it appear even normal on the on the air. If you're being if you're just using average energy, you're going to come across flat and dead. So you need to overemphasize the energy and yet still keep it conversational. That's not easy to do, but I think that's the way you will be most effective. And it's it's a it's a hard little balance there, but but I think that's the way to go. And let me ask you on the flip side of that. What is the one thing that younger up-and-coming sportscasters have or, or maybe a tool that they have now that you, know, that you are pleasantly surprised to see or, or that you think is a real positive in terms of the future of sportscasting? Well, I, I, there I will go to uh, our, our new guy, Jonah Javad, who is now – he's our weekend guy that uh, just came in. And uh, he's a Missouri guy, by the way. Sorry – North, oh well, then North, there you go. Northwestern, <laughs> Northwestern didn't make the cut this time. We we brought in, but this is Matt. This is the first time we've ever hired anybody right out of college. But but Jonah came to us straight out of Mizzou Journalism School, and and he reminds me a lot of you in that it, right away he's a great storyteller. He really shoots well, edits well, all of these things. He came ready to go. I mean, he was a he was the package deal. He, he you know he just came out and and his. He saved my rear end so many times when at six o'clock there might be some things that would happen. I might have a glitch or something would happen. And I'd say, Jonah, <laughs> help. And he'd, <laughs> he'd slip right in there and, you know, faster than you could say, boo, the problem is fixed. And he'd go, anything else? And I'd go, no, thanks. That's good. But he is really marvelous at the, putting stories together, putting the video together, all those kind of things. And uh, yeah, I, you know what? I, I could do it another 10 years, 20 years and not get there. And I will say that, uh, you know, I went, I went around the country uh, this winter for Gannett teaching a lot of the newspaper reporters and photographers to do video stories for the web and to use their iPhones while doing it. And it was really interesting to see some, uh, in some cases, the primitive level of skill that they had with, you know, video editing. It's not, it was never their job. And it is now their job, and they're really learning from scratch. And then on the flip side, I recently uh, led a workshop for college journalists, and uh, you know, a few of them sent me their resume tapes. And my goodness, I mean, they are really – their ability to edit a story and edit a tight story and, and to do everything on their own, a self-contained unit, as you said, I mean, it's, it's really impressive. And uh, for me, it's definitely exciting certainly to, to be – uh, to be able to witness that and, and witness them come up. But um, Ed, this has been wonderful. And uh, and before I let you go, I always like to ask that famous journalistic question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? <laughs> well, yeah, th- there actually is, Matt. And, it's, and, and this is right up your alley because I know you're a guy that likes adventure and to do things unusual and out of the box. And, and I think everybody should. I'm not saying they should do crazy things, but I learned, you know, I read Marv Levy's book um, and, and and realized because, you know, I, I reached 60 uh, about five years ago now. And I read Marv Levy's book and it was very interesting to me. 
it dawned on me, he didn't emphasize this, but that all of the great things that happened to him happened to him after he was 60 years old. He coached the Bills to the four Super Bowl. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame because of things he did after he was 60. That really stuck with me. And I thought, you know what? I've got it. Well, I've still got some quality time here. I need to. And you know what happened. And I, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. This was. I was wondering if that well, was going to come up. It was, I was hoping well, it because, would. Matt, it was a life-changing experience. It was a life-changing experience because it was so difficult to do. And we had, you know, three of the 12 got altitude sickness and had to come down. There were some people that died while we were uh, doing it. I mean, it's 19,340 feet. Takes you six days. That last night, it's it's five degrees. The wind is blowing. You're going up steep rock and you can't breathe because the air is 50% of what it is. And I found, you know what? It, it was like I found out what's inside there. I, I never thought about quitting. I just thought, my God, how long is this... But the end result of it was I got this this feeling that won't go away. Now, that was two years ago. So from that, this feeling, I then wrote a book. And and if you have, don't have it, I'll send it to you. But um, but 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 and, and now here's this thing. I'm, I'm going to work in an entirely new business. But this had been going on for a while because um, I'd been kind of talking to Pagula for a while and this had been in the works for a while. And now I now have a dream job. I mean, I'm going to be traveling all over the country, uh, also working in the oil and gas business um, and and doing a lot of new things and, you know, retire. Heck. Uh, so I guess my advice is is uh, just just uh, push things to the limit. Do things that you that are out of your comfort zone, whether it's learn a language, right, whatever it is, do something that's hard to do. And the reward is more than worth it. You know, I, uh, I'm really glad you brought that up and, and I've said this to you privately, but I will, I will say it to you publicly as well that, uh, you know, I, uh, I left channel two in Buffalo just as, just as this Kilimanjaro climb was starting to take hold. And even back then I could always tell just how much excitement you were feeling <laughs> about doing it. And, and it's been a pleasure to, you know, obviously become your friend on Facebook and, and watch the journey unfold and to, and to keep in touch as we have. And it always amazed me. And, and I think it speaks to, first of all, the fact that you did that at the age that you did that is phenomenal on its own. But to me, one thing that I always admired about you when I was working with you and, and now after the fact is that, you know, as much as you loved your job and as much as you did it well, you always continued to, to seek out other adventures whether it was, you know, being very interested in politics and in history or taking on a climb like Kilimanjaro, there was always just that extra level where in addition to enjoying your job, you never forgot to enjoy life. And uh, that is always something that I took away from you and something that I would certainly recommend to anybody who's just getting into this industry because it re that really is true. You know, my first job, I worked 60 hours a week and there wasn't a whole lot of room for enjoying life. At that time, I loved my job, but didn't really have much time to do anything else. And, you know, I really have gradually made an effort as I've gone on in my career to work hard and play hard. And I know that's a cliche, but to be focused when I'm at work and to work my butt off there. And then when I'm not at work, make sure that I'm taking advantage of that time, too. And that's that's something that I in large part saw in you when I worked in Buffalo. Well, you know, uh, your desk was right near mine. And I still tell people 
I used to love uh, our conversations sometimes, even if they were brief, because they would be about so many different things. You know, one thing I remember you brought up one time, and I, I laugh to this day. You, you asked me with a straight face if Tommy Lee Jones had underachieved. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm trying to... and we talked and and we talked about it. We actually talked about it. Yeah, I don't remember now, what. He, no, I I remember <laughs> that. And 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 now who but Matt Pearl would come up with that? But but I see that's but that's exactly what you're saying is there. There's a whole world out there, you know. And 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 it's, it's you might as well have fun. But I'll never forget that. I still haven't decided if he did or not. I was going to ask you a follow up question. Do you think yeah, he did or not? Yeah, I I no, I th- I think he I think he did okay. I think he achieved. And and yeah. since we've you know since we've parted ways uh, uh, career wise too, he's had a nice little renaissance. So it might be time to if if we had that discussion now, it could be a whole different ballgame. I don't even know if I'd bring it up now. Well, well, see, Matt, that, that's like if you're talking about Ed Kilgore. You you might say that he underachieved uh, in the broadcast, but there's still time to make up for it. <laughs> I would never say that. Ed, thank you so much. This was really a joy, and uh, it was a pleasure to have you. And uh, is this your first interview since uh, since leaving the broadcast world? Uh, it is, and probably my last. Oh, boy. Uh, if, if, if they hear about it, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> but no, 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 actually, uh, you know, I have no idea, but I – I will divorce myself from the media now, and uh, but I w- I'm still going to be a sports fan, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, believe me, it was uh, 40 great years in Buffalo, and, and I'm thrilled to have been a small part of that. So thank you so much for coming on tonight. You bet. All right, Ed, thank you so much. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Thanks, to, uh, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Thanks to Ed Kilgore, and we'll see you next time.